Welcome to Modern Figures Podcast, hosted by Dr. Jeremy Waysom and Dr. Kyla McMullen, where we are elevating the voices of Black women in computing to inspire the next generation of the advanced technology workforce. This podcast exists to highlight the stories of Black women in computing, inspire high schoolers and the young at heart, and to dispel the myths and preconceptions about Black women in computing. Kyla and I are from the Institute for African American Mentoring in Computing Sciences, or IMCS. IMCS serves as a national resource for computing students, faculty, and industry professionals. We're funded by the National Science Foundation. Our goals are to increase the number of African Americans receiving doctoral degrees in the computing sciences, to promote and engage students in teaching and training opportunities, and to add more diverse researchers into the advanced technology workforce. This podcast is funded by the National Center for Women in Information Technology. NCWIT is a nonprofit that convenes, equips, and unites change leader organizations to increase the participation of all women in the field of computing. Today, we have an extremely special guest in the studio. We have Dr. Angelique Johnson, who is a a rock star. She has her own tech company called MemSTEM that she founded from the ground up, doing everything herself. She's now at a place where she can, you know, hire and have lots more people. So we're going to talk to her today to find out how in the world she does this, how we can get on her level. And I'm excited to have you here today. Ooh, I'm excited to be here. Cool. (laughs) So uh, let's start out with how you grew up and what your experiences were like, like as a young child. <laughs> okay, uh, so I guess the first most critical fact is that I grew up um, in a family with eleven children. I had uh, two parents that were at home, but both and both of well, I said but <laughs> but and both of them were uh, in the STEM area. So my dad, he was a chemical engineer, environmental engineer. Oh. My mom, she had majored in math and she actually went to work for General Electric when she graduated from Fisk University doing um, coding. So she was kind of those early punch card coders. <laughs> but as soon as she started having kids or not shortly thereafter, she became a stay at home mother. I mean, as you can imagine with uh, 11 kids. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, more than a full-time job. But she was really invested in um, raising us. And so she actually homeschooled, started homeschooling us um, at a certain age. So not all of us were homeschooled, but I was, I think, in first grade when she started homeschooling us. So science and engineering and math was pretty key to my education early on. That's amazing. So... Did you go to like a traditional school in high school? Nope, I was homeschooled all the way through. Wow, first, like her first college. school was college. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> all the way through. That's amazing. <laughs> so, we had like um, I did. I she would send us away in the summertime. Me and my uh, younger sister Maya to mm-hmm. a math camp. <laughs> it sounds a little nerdy. It was actually pretty fun in uh, Texas. So I did. So that was kind of maybe my first college campus experience. Yeah. That was when I think maybe started doing that when I was 15. Okay. But um, but yeah, my first kind of full schooling was a uh, good old UMBC. That's crazy. I don't know that I've met anyone who didn't have like a social any kind disorder. of. <laughs> <laughs> that is not what I was gonna say. Yeah, let, me, let me fill in the blank for you. <laughs> that is 
not. Anybody who wasn't a serial killer <laughs> that was. <No. laughs> people who, I'm just saying, you're very well adjusted. Most yeah. people are like, oh yeah, I went to homeschool up until high school or up yeah. until middle. But yeah, yeah. like all no. the way through. <laughs> Yeah. yeah okay. Back, it was rare back then, but now I mean now it's more it's common. More common yeah. So now yeah. people are there's more like homeschool groups. So we there were some homeschool groups that we went to, um, you know, back then. But I think you know I had so many older siblings and that probably helped. And my mom was always trying to find homeschool groups. So we'd meet with some homeschool groups were large, it'd be a hundred oh, of kids, wow. and some homeschool groups were small, just be like us and three other families, and we'd meet up in somebody's <laughs> living room once a week. You know, that's so, pretty cool. Yeah. So I didn't I didn't mean it in that way. I was saying like you clearly had a lot of experiences that inspired you to pursue, you know, something different, right? Like something that most kids who are homeschooled wouldn't have had the exposure to. So I think it's really cool that you you chose to go to college and pursue computer science early on. Because most people going into college have no clue what they're going <laughs> right. to do. And your mom clearly had a huge influence on your yeah. lives. What about your siblings? Did any of them go yeah. on to be computer scientists too? We're, um, so we're mostly, almost everybody in, is in STEM. Okay. Although now since we have had STEAM, science, technology, engineering, and arts, <laughs> Matt, yeah. then um, so all of us are in STEAM. Cool. But mo- um, so we have... Some people in my family, my oldest brother, he does like IT. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, he actually was kind of on the early, um, maybe he's about to turn 50 or maybe already turned 50. A little bit shady on the ages. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are 11 like, of you, right? Yeah, so, <laughs> so, yeah, he's somewhere in the 50 years. Yeah, you know, maybe not quite there yet. Um, <laughs> but he, yeah, so he was kind of really early on, self-taught, you know, um, tech techie and uh you know kind of back when you know it wasn't a college degree for it you know you didn't have to wasn't any high school classes for Mm -hmm. it um and he just kind of was self-taught all the way down to like you know as you go down the line we've had people in computer science people in mechanical engineering and electrical engineering and biomedical engineering math my younger sister maya is actually the first african-american female to be a math instructor at texas a&m where she got her phd so she's there now so it's yeah so we're boss family in there not just (laughs) Bouse. Bouse. Not just one rock star. Everybody is. Cool. That's amazing. So we should mention that you and Kyla are really good friends. That's right. Because she's I. Oh. Yeah, she's right. <laughs> You know, we went, through, we went through a divorce, you know. Right. I'm not trying to touch on that on this right. podcast today. Um, <laughs> but y'all have known each other since undergrad and both ended up going to Michigan together for graduate school. Right. So probably both of you should talk about that, like what it was like at UMBC and then the differences between that and Michigan in terms of pursuing oh, yeah. degrees. I don't know if you would agree, Angie. I would say, like, at UMBC, like, we had a lot of just, like, just scaffolding, like, lots of help, a huge network that you could just say, hey, I'm having a problem with something, and just walk into someone's office. And we, our whole scholarship program had, like, eight full-time staff members who, whose job it was was to make sure that these 200 students had the best academic experience ever. And this was because of, you know, an endowment that had they had been given, but, you know, most schools don't have that. So get to Michigan and we're like, Hey, um, so who do I talk to if I'm failing this course? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I you know, the reason that 
and I think both of us probably went to Michigan for the same reason. I was going to go somewhere else. I was oh, yeah. I was sold. I had already accepted to another university. Yep. I had already accepted the fellowship package and everything. But my mom was like, oh, you, know, you should go to Michigan. And, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, God had told her. And I was like, God ain't telling me nothing. No, <laughs> but in time, he did. In time, he did. I just didn't want to hear wow. it. Wow, 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 wow. I just wasn't trying to be up there in the cold weather. But I'm I went. You on that. But I'm... I went for a visitation weekend. They had a... Uh, the SMESG program, which was the Society of Minority Engineering Students graduate component or something like mm-hmm. that. And I went up for a visit and I was like, whoa, there's all these supportive black people. And it felt a lot like the Meyerhoff Scholarship yeah. Program that we had at UNBC. Yeah. And um, and so, you know, that kind of started swaying me a little bit, but I was still rigid. And then eventually, you know, God did tell me like, yeah, this is where you need to be because you need that support, the same support that got me through being in a primarily white institute in undergrad. I needed that in grad school. The only difference, the big difference though, is when you kind of got on campus, you realize that it's different having a support group of black people in your discipline. Yeah. You know, because, you know, mm-hmm. we had that at the Meyerhoff College. We had that in undergrad. Like, there were a handful of black people in all of my classes mm-hmm. that we could study together. When you got on to grad school, it was like, oh, there's a handful of us spread across 50,000 students on the whole entire <laughs> right. campus. And you realize that, yeah, you're kind of on your own when you get in your department and you're the only African-American female to have even been in the PhD program in like decades. Right. <laughs> wow. And there were professors who had never taught a black student on the graduate level yeah. and had no problem telling you that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not talking about 1980. This is like 2005, yep. 2006 we're talking about. Oh, yeah. So you, you just That's have to tragic. go through all that kind of stuff. So you have a startup company called Memstem. Mm-hmm. What does MemStem mean? So MemStem is um, it's actually shorthand for MEMS stimulators, and MEMS M E M S is shorthand for microelectromechanical systems. Fancy. Um, basically, the same technology they use to make integrated circuits, but to make all kinds of mechanically moving devices, electrically actuating and sensing devices. Hmm. Cool. Nanotechnology, but a little bit bigger. Yeah. So bigger than nano. Smaller than micro, somewhere in the middle. Uh, micro, yeah, it's it's in the micro range. But you know, it also, you know, nowadays, you know, in science, like people start fudging all the lines. You know, depending <laughs> on the grant, depending on the grant application. Right. So depending on the grant, the funding agency could be nano, could be micro, could be macro. Right. Like, like who's writing the check? <laughs> who's what writing you want the it check? <laughs> what you want it to be? So the electronic components themselves are on that scale. They're yeah. super, 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 super yep. tiny. Yeah. In other words. Some of the devices, um, on some of the components on the devices I make are smaller than, you know, one-tenth the strand of a human hair. Whoa. The diameter of a human strand of hair. So I always tell people, like, if I'm, especially if I'm talking to kids, yeah. I'll say, you know, well, you know, take a piece of your hair and think about the diameter of that, which is usually between 150, 200 microns. Okay, now think about that being 10 times smaller. Mm-hmm. That's what you know, some of the wires that we're creating are that small. And that's still relatively big in the world of MEMS and nanotechnology. So it's it's small, um, but it's powerful. It's a powerful technology. It allows, it's the reason, I'll tell people, it's the reason why, you know, we have all these computers in our pockets now that used to take up a whole entire building right. because people got away from, <laughs> you know, hand assembling, you know, vacuum tubes, and they automated the process so that if you can draw it on a computer-aided design program, you know, using software, then you can make it 
in an actual physical clean room environment. And that's what we're trying to do for medical technologies with MemSTEM. A lot of medical technologies are still assembled by hand. So they might have circuit chips in them that are made with automated mm -hmm. manufacturing. But a lot of the components that are physically touching the body, the casings, in our case, um, medical uh, stimulating wires that stimulate nerves and neurons for relieving chronic pain, helping with Parkinson's tremors, restoring hearing, all of that technology is assembled by hand with somebody going back to the size of the wires, right? So once like there's a quarter of the strand of the human, uh, quarter diameter of human strand of hair, people are micro-welding that, looking through a microscope to That's assemble nuts. it. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So wait, before we get really in detail about um, your products and what you're creating, yeah. you've been moving your hands a lot, talking about <laughs> this hair. Uh, yeah, no. And yeah, all no. I can see yeah, no. are these nails. <laughs> Like yeah. what? What's going on there? Can you so, explain? So I, they're, um, what do you call it? Chrome finish. Okay. Oh, yeah, I love them. I really love them. I, I, I gonna tell you my secrets. Okay, to okay. them. So people ask recipe. me your secret recipe. <laughs> <laughs> people ask me like, oh, where are you gonna know? Ah. Okay, so we can't know. We can't. Okay, you can't know how. But what you can know is that I don't. Know, I like things like this. I like that. You know, as a female, you know, computer scientist, as a female scientist, as a female engineer. I can, and being only my own company, mm -hmm. I don't have anybody telling me what nails I can put on and <laughs> right. can't put on, you <laughs> right, know? Right. Like, yeah. You can't see, you know, well, I guess, you know, maybe later on you could see, but like, you know, I I'm, I'm have a kind of a faux hawk thing going on with my hair and mm -hmm. it's just my natural curls. And I don't know, anytime I have a moment to just express myself yeah. <laughs> in the world of engineering, that's important. Yeah, we were saying earlier, you were saying earlier how like, you know, anytime that there's like a spotlight or a highlight on a black woman in technology or computing that it's always, oh, let's get a picture of you in your lab, a picture for me, a picture of you in your classroom, a picture of that. Like, that's not natural. Like, how about me when I'm being me? Yeah. Like, can we just show that image? So Is like, that yeah. like the headscarf and pajamas you or? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> on a good day actually. Oh, okay yeah because that would be me actually yeah. <laughs> show them how we really live exactly but that but that is so true because what you know you want to stimulate young girls to go into you know science and technology but you keep showing the same images of you know girl women sitting down at computers typing away or women yeah. looking under a microscope or women mm -hmm. in a lab or women right. in, and with a boxy jacket yeah. on. and they don't want to do that they want to interact <laughs> with human beings so they think, oh, if I become a computer scientist, then I'm just going to be interacting with the computer all day long. And that's the last thing that they want to do. But if you actually show them like, hey, us doing dance, us right. going out and doing things like this podcast, like this is part of computer science, too. Like there's all these different things, you know, that yeah. are involved in it that you just didn't want to show um, yeah. because they, they themselves sometimes don't understand that there's more to the female scientist, computer scientist than just the computer code. Yeah, we, and, we've made it a point to wear, like, T-shirts yeah, and talk about yeah, our hair on the podcast. Exactly. So. And Angie, one thing that I especially like about your research and what you've done is because you've taken computing, computer engineering, and we've talked about how, like, the new sort of wave of innovation is applying it to other fields. So the yep. fact that you have such a heavily medical application, people wouldn't know, oh, I could go to school for computer mm -hmm. engineering. Because your undergrads in computer engineering. Yep. People would think that, you know, from what you work on now, you would have some medical background but the fact that you know the, you can merge these two fields together and show people hey you can actually impact a person's life mm -hmm. and not like you said be stuck behind a computer the whole day right yeah, that's the cs plus x exactly that we've been talking about 
I mean, who has a monolithic career nowadays? We're, I mean, we're sitting there talking about, I'm going to be a computer scientist, I'm going to be a mechanical engineer. And then you get to, you know, you get beyond college and you realize, like, geez, that was all a farce. Like, you know, yeah. tell, tell me the day of the week. I'm a computer scientist today, might be a mechanical engineer tomorrow, I might be, you know, a, a beauty pageant director. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Depends on what day it is. You know, it might be a, uh, a production assistant. Right. On production day. Assistant. You know, so I think like, but the, having a foundation in computer engineering was really critical because there, you could do anything with computers. You could be in any discipline if your foundation is in computer science or computer engineering. And then you just start building upon and adding things as you go. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the stuff that I added as I went was not stuff I was taught like I've never taken a biology class like never never oh, in my wow. life <laughs> taken wow. a biology class and I'm yeah. in medical devices <laughs> <laughs> now uh no, nobody called the police <laughs> I'm not a doctor okay. but I do play one in the lab <laughs> but, but you know but the reality is we live in the internet age you know we live in the age where you can pick up knowledge on your own not everything that you're taught needs to come from sitting behind a table in a lecture hall yeah and so I think you just need these foundations and then you just start adding stuff on and now every day like we'll have technical meetings and it helps i have a computer engineering background so when we're talking about what we're going to do in terms of making a new circuit for our device i'm on board with my engineers when we're talking about mechanical things like testing and making sure our devices don't fall apart in the human body i'm on board with that you know we're talking about the electrical stimulation and how can we make sure we reduce the amount of charge so that there's not an adverse effect in the body i know that and so it just you know kind of comes from this interdisciplinary world that we're not going back to the you know you do computer science and that's all you do is do coding and you'll never have to touch any other discipline like that that's not going to go back again we're not going back to that again thank god you know because we definitely don't need that right like we need this innovation so what inspired you to come up with this company and this idea that you had to like merge nanotechnology into the space that you're in we haven't really talked about that Mm -hmm. but your primary product relates to hearing. Yeah. So how did you make that connection? So I, when I, I mean, I'm just going to be honest, when I came out of undergrad, I just knew I loved computers. Yeah. And I wanted somehow to do computers and combine computers and medicine. Okay. And I was still, you know, I mean, I'm dating myself, but, you know, I graduated <laughs> in 2005. So biomedical engineering still was developing really mm-hmm. um and it may have been in existence for a while but it was things like people advise me don't get a biomedical engineering phd because people won't know where to put you yep. where to hire you mm-hmm. uh, uh, they still do that now i think they still advise some students yeah. not to pursue it because there just aren't many jobs we haven't caught up yeah. right yeah. With, with the need for the on. innovation that's in so certain true. spaces yeah. and so i just when i got to grad school you don't really get you know you don't get to choose your projects yeah uh, it wasn't like i people i said did you have a relative that was deaf and hard of hearing or did you have it's like no i got to grad school and i said you can choose <laughs> dr advisor and one i liked uh-huh. and you know dr kenzel wise and he said you can choose to work on the brain recording from the brain or you can choose to work on stimulating inside the ear for hearing loss Mm. and I chose the cochlear implant project because I really wanted to work on a project that I knew could make a human impact in the next you know at that time I thought well the next five to ten years you know I wanted something that in my lifetime was going to make an impact and I saw the other projects as great and exciting and stimulating um, you know in terms of emotionally intriguing but I didn't see myself I didn't see anybody using that technology before you know I was rolled up into a grave so (laughs) 
I mean, and that's just like being honest. So yeah. I, I chose the cochlear implant project and I certainly wasn't thinking about starting a business. It wasn't until my very last year of grad school, I was writing my dissertation, still trying to get data. Mm. And there was a lot of buzz around entrepreneurship at University of Michigan. And I thought, well, you know, let me go check it out just to build my CVs to say at least I had the experience because I heard people were talking about oh go to the interview process they're actually about entrepreneurship now so I just you know kind of did it as a curiosity and the curiosity turned into something more I started winning business plan competitions and um, and that that really kind of pushed me into saying okay I could start this company which I think is also a point that I want to make is that entrepreneurs people feel like oh you have to be born an entrepreneur and you you know I have been selling lemonade from since you were a child and sometimes <laughs> you know and the same could be said of computer science sometimes yeah. it's just being immersed in something that uh -huh. you're not sure if you want to get into and finding out that you like it so you know computer science is the same just be being around the coding like doing the, the black girls code camps and things like that like just experiencing it and then you might find oh wow i really like this this yeah. is for me yeah so just kind of exposure to the opportunity to participate in entrepreneurship gave you a more entrepreneurial mind yeah. and kind of hone those skills yeah. so that you could go out and start your own company. Exactly. And then when you do those, um, you know, business plan competitions, they put you in several different panels of investors and they just tear you to shreds. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's like a dissertation. Yes, they don't have any yeah. script. And the thing is, it's worse because, and you know, now I know, but when I first started, I didn't know. So, like, the very first time that I had been put in one of these kind of Shark Tank panels is for, like, the first round of the competition. And, uh, you know, I was pitching with my partner at that time, my business partner at that time. And, you know, I just felt like we got torn to shreds. These guys mm -hmm. were, like, t making low blows, I felt. And I was just, like, you know, I left. I went home, you know, shed some tears. And I was like, oh, Lord, I'm getting out of this thing. I am not. <laughs> this is terrible. Like, I thought it was hard in, in engineering. Like, these yeah. guys are ruthless, you know. And I just, like, I, you know, I just thought I did terrible job. Uh, you know, my uh, the guy I was working with at the time, he was in the NBA program. He's like, oh, we didn't do too bad. And I'm like, are you crazy? This guy's nuts. You know? <laughs> and I, then I picked this nuts self business partner. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> but we ended up winning that round. And wow. so I learned at that wow. lesson right there that in the business world, when they start making low blows, that means that there's nothing of value for them to critique. Right. Wow. So now, from that moment on, when I start, when I pitch in front of investors, and if they start, you know, like if they're making kind of things, or I'm like, oh, okay, I'm doing really good because they're not really tearing apart anything of intellectual value. They're just, they have to have something negative to say. So just saying something negative. So what's an example of like one of these kind of low blows? Like, oh, and your geez. shoes is ugly. And your <laughs> shoes is ugly. Who told you about, who told you about them listed, you right. know? And uh, it'll just be like, kind of the equivalent of your shoes is ugly with your business, you know, like, <laughs> uh, you know, like, you know, oh Lord, you think you're gonna, you're gonna get this company off the ground with $200,000, you know, you're, you're not gonna go off $200,000. It's gonna take a million dollars. You're such an idiot. You don't wow. know what you're doing. Get out of here when you come back. <laughs> come back when you got some <laughs> better. You, you know, when you got some, you know, you understand what you're doing in the world of business. You know, when wow. they get to kind of like tearing hmm. down you as an entrepreneur and your credibility as an entrepreneur. They just I used, want to steal your idea at that they, point. Mm. Not really steal your, <laughs> shoot, some of them might. But uh -huh. I think it's not really that. Is it just like. You know, they have to find, and now when I judge competitions, now I understand too. It's like you, there's this pressure. You have to find work by process of elimination. Uh -huh. So you have to, you're trying to poke holes and stuff. And when you can't poke holes in like the technical side of it, you try, well, then the person isn't really, you know, maybe this, maybe this, I got to figure out, maybe this isn't the right person to bring this uh, idea to fruition. You know, toxic. and they've done studies to show that they're much harsher on women than of they course. are on men in and I'm terms sure of this process. Surprise, surprise. Oh yeah. Make it any better, right? Oh right. yeah. It doesn't make any better. Now I will say one thing that, that 
that surprisingly was an advantage, I guess, um, is that when you're an African-American female and you stand in front of a panel of investors, I have no context for you because I haven't seen, and especially when you're talking about mm. technology, they have no context. Like they've never seen yeah, it before. It's like mind blown. In some mm-hmm. case, mind blown. Unicorn. Unicorn. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> and so they just get mesmerized by your purple rainbow, you know, hey, horn. Right. And, <laughs> and I used to have like advisors and they would say, Angelique, I don't know what you're doing, but whatever you're doing, like they would go through, you know, because we had three people on the, the pitching team. And so they would, he would go to each one and he was like, this is what you need to do, baby. This is what you need. And he would get to me and say, Angelique, I don't know what you're doing, but whatever you're doing, just like keep doing. Like they love you. Like they're mesmerized. Wow. Like I don't know what you know. Like you're saying, and, and he's watching the whole thing too. And he's just like, I don't know what it is, but they just love you. And I think they're having a black woman sitting in front of them be confident to know the technology and know the business side of it mm-hmm. was just like they were like, oh wow, you know, like this is something that we, you know, we gotta be a part of. That's super cool. So Angie, like. As a person who started off in tech and then now you have this business, like what did you do to build up your business skills? Like for people out there who, Mm -hmm. you know, are in tech and they are thinking about a company where they have no idea like what business, Mm -hmm. anything they need to know. Like Mm -hmm. what did you do? Um, The University of Michigan had a really good program going on at that time. Um, I don't know if they they still do it or not. I would hope so. (laughs) Where as part of this business plan competition, it was almost, and I don't know if they had planned it this way, but um, but to me it was pretty genius. So what they did was they had a seminar series where they taught you how to build a business plan for your idea, mm-hmm. but they merged that with the competition. So on, let's say Monday, I can't remember the exact days, but like on Monday, the beginning of the week, they would teach you a topic, like here's how you do um, a competitive analysis. And then at the end of the week, you would have to pitch your business to a panel of judges and you were going to merge that topic somehow to produce another part of your business plan that you were pitching. So there was a positive reinforcement to get the knowledge, to ask everybody you could ask about how to do it, to work it out, to hash it out because you were pitching. And the the prize for the whole competition was like $30,000. I think it could have been up to 35 when you added all these extras into it. So I always encourage people, you know, either do a boot camp and there's a lot of incubator programs Mm -hmm. now. Um, you know, I hold boot camps at, um, in Louisville. We do boot camps for uh, entrepreneurs of color and women that want to get into business and have an idea. We walk them through how to do a business plan, how to vet their idea. Now we use Business Model Canvas, which is really popular. So that's the best thing you can do, you know, when you just have your idea. Because the thing is, you might have you might wake up in the morning and think, I'm going to make purple cookies and the world's going to love it. And what we normally do is we go out and get some dime, get some purple cookie batter, and we, you know, make, spend all this money. And, you know, some people even go as far as, you know, paying for rent in a bakery. But <laughs> but hopefully you stop yourself at the farmer's market. So at least I'll start at the farmer's market. Mm-hmm. And you do all this stuff and you spend now maybe, you know, a few hundred dollars. You get out to the farmer's market and nobody wants to eat purple cookies, you know, because <laughs> you didn't ask weird. anybody yeah, along the right. way. You didn't do any customer discovery along the way um, before you just started going out there and doing it. And then we get so fixated on, well, nobody ate them here, but they're going to eat them somewhere. You know, like, <laughs> like the purple cookies are your new mixtape, you know, right. <laughs> it's like a bad rap mixtape, right. you know. You hustle about the, the back of your trunk. Do the children know what mixtapes are these days? Oh, gosh, maybe oh, not. Oh, oh, so sad. It's a bad uh, YouTube, <laughs> I don't know what, personality, <laughs> yeah. influencer page. Right. <laughs> it's the new a t-shirt maybe maybe yeah. a new t-shirt bad. i don't even know what the analogy is there i think is it, no. it would be a, a new bad soundcloud what? 
<laughs> yeah, it's a bad okay. SoundCloud. <laughs> that would be the equivalent. That's it. But you know, but to me, the the most important thing you can do as an entrepreneur is first vet your own idea. If you're trying to sell purple cookies, then go to the mall, stand in the mall, and ask random people about their connection to cookies and whether they've ever thought about coloring cookies or what you know. Ask just ask some general things around cookies, and you might find out that purple cookies isn't actually the move. Maybe the move is cookie bars you know that are like snickers bars are wrapped up they look like a snickers bar but it's a cookie and, you and can, a purple you know, package and a purple yeah. package maybe <laughs> maybe you can figure out some way to get your purple in there right you know purple rain cookie bars or something yeah. <laughs> but that right. so that's really what i believe in training people to do is to vet their idea by just asking people outside their friends and family and getting real user feedback before you spend hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of dollars on a bad business idea or a business idea just needs to be revetted and tweaked to make it even better no cool. that's amazing yeah i think one thing people tend to get very sensitive about their baby their project oh, yeah. you don't want to hear anybody give any criticism um and then it's sort of complicated by the fact that the people closest to you like you said like your your mom's going to be yeah, like oh yeah baby you could do yeah. anything you want so your friends are going to hype you up so you need to get that stranger right. to you know tell you like it is yeah mm -hmm. and then that whole baby analogy you know the other thing we do is so people either do that where they get everybody around them to tell them positive things. So it's mm -hmm. usually friends and family. Or what you see is this like toxic bravado that mm. happens in the entrepreneurial world, which deters women and um, minority entrepreneurs from even getting in the game because it tends to be a toxic white male bravado, but it spreads um, across ethnicities and also across genders where you're really insecure about your baby. So instead of admitting that, you know, maybe you didn't have the cutest baby in the world, you know, <laughs> or maybe, you know, your baby is bald headed. Maybe your baby yeah, does look like does, you know, Your baby ain't got no hair. Right. So we've all seen the babies. <laughs> With no hair, that got, you know, 5,000 bows on two strands. <laughs> you know? And people walking around like the baby's the best thing in the world. Well, that's what people do with their business. They have this, like... I need a napkin, because I'm about to start crying, laughing. I'm thinking about, like, remember Rugrats? Yeah, and Angelica had that exactly Cynthia doll, and it had all the hair going in different directions. <laughs> Some people out here with their business going in all different directions, and they go... <laughs> Let's bring it but back. You, Let's just bring it back, y'all. You can't tell them nothing. You just can't tell somebody about how crazy their business is when, when their baby looks a hot mess. Right. Yeah. You cannot they tell they them. aren't trying to hear but, it. But, but the thing is this. Those are the people that you that will, when you walk in the room with a good business idea will make you feel like your business is garbage and theirs is great. And so it's this bravado mm -hmm. that's in the entrepreneurial world where people walk in with all this swagger about how much I've raised or how much I'm going to raise. And it all becomes about raising money. Like that's the, the currency in the startup world is how much money have you raised? Mm -hmm. You know, who cares how much money? Is your product on the shelf? Is anyone using your product? What Since when did how much you raise become a merit? And so people have that bravado. And so it deters women and minority entrepreneurs because you're easy fruit for them to kind of build their bravado on by pushing you down and so those environments at least for me can sometimes be toxic so I actually don't hang around um, a lot of you know entrepreneurial networking people hey come to this network and that network thing and you get there and it's just a lot of people with a lot of bravado so we have um, when I do training or why I hold a networking event or something I say it's a bravado free zone that's great yeah. so I try to be honest about what's going on in my business and I encourage people be honest just you know you can't get help you can't grow if you're not honest about what needs to be worked on and that's a valuable thing to bring across different types of things like not just in the startup world but like if you're going to graduate school that is a good skill to master understanding that you don't know everything right and you aren't the yeah. expert yet 
Right. And the goal is to get you to that level, but you have to humble yourself to Hashtag, be successful. You ain't got the lack, Rick. Exactly. <laughs> well, actually, well, actually, you know what you're talking well, about. Well, actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, speaking of you know, getting your startup off the ground and finding ways to fund yourself. Where did you get your money from to start your company? Did you come out of your pocket? Did you uh, use the 10 other people in your <laughs> family <laughs> to help get it started? Or what did you do? Um, so that's, uh, you know, as, as and I'm not making a blanket statement, but just the facts are the facts. As African-Americans, we don't have a lot of generational wealth because mm-hmm. of something called slavery. So <laughs> we don't have a lot of friends and family money. Mm-hmm. And everybody's always like, well, your first round of money comes from friends and family. Um, and I can remember my business partner early on, because he was a white male, um, early on, say, well, y'all go to you know this for that family member. And I'm thinking to myself, well, my family, I'm not, I wouldn't even dare go to my family and ask yeah. for it. So because even if they had it, I would feel um, bad about taking it because it's risky. It's very risky. Yep. Yeah. So what I did was I did a lot of um, business plan competitions. So I probably raised maybe around 50000 when all was said and done from the business plan competitions. Around mm-hmm. something like 45000 And then I applied to an NSF I-Corps grant. And the I-Corps program is designed to be an, another step of business training. So that's another thing I recommend to people outside of the incubators. It's another kind of national incubator program. And that gave you $50,000 at that time. We were like, I think, what, the first cohorts. That's amazing. So they gave you 50000 And then from there, I applied to um, NIH, uh, National Institutes of Health, SBIR, program so I applied for phase one and I got that then I applied for phase two and got that and so a lot of our money has to come from grants or from just competitions and then the state of Kentucky matched the grant funding that we had through a grant program that they had Mm -hmm. so in medical device field especially in our field since we're doing like the highest class of devices you you know it's going in the body for long periods of time it could be a 10-year roadway from start to finish so the most the more free money non-dilutive is kind of what you call it money that you can get to build value in your company and then take on investors and we did have there was um early on an uh, investor angel investor that had wanted to invest but at that time i thought you know i don't even know what i'm doing with this company i want to be responsible (laughs) for your money now if i probably if i was a white male i wouldn't even thought that thought you know i would just take in the money and isn't that interesting what to done how we kind of like prevent ourselves from having opportunities yeah we're more cautious i feel like in general with with things like that like money is not something that you have the opportunity to have often yeah and so when people offer it to you you wonder like what strings might be attached to this right Right. at least with you know the sbir small business innovation research funding there really aren't strings attached but for you to innovate yeah right so I get perfect. that. It's yeah. perfect. And, and, and when you're, you know, kind of on the fringes of this, you you do have to be careful. The reality is you do have to be careful with the money that you take. Anybody has to be any entrepreneur, whether the white male or not, has to be careful. But you're right. There's strength. There could be strings attached. And I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs that you get an investor. And what you don't realize is, yeah, you may still own 60 percent of your company. Yep. But he who owns the gold <laughs> makes the rules. Yep. So mm-hmm. it doesn't the matter if they rule. own 20 percent of your company. If their money is the only money that's making it work, then they own you yep. and they can ride you and they can turn your product into dog food if it makes them money. So <laughs> <laughs> and that's a reality. 
that that happens. Yeah. It happens. Yeah. Like if you think about it, somebody you know as wonderful hit as Twitter is, Twitter wasn't Twitter. Twitter was a side project for somebody working on a whole nother company yeah. idea. And so somebody probably is out there thinking, dang, I wish Twitter hadn't come around because I was really gonna move forward. You know what I'm saying? So, mm-hmm. so investors will get whatever they can get and that's what they're supposed to do so you know for me the more value you can build the more solid solid story the more solid marketplace validation you can build in your company before you take on invest the better because that way you're showing them that okay this doesn't need to be dog food at the end of the day we can make money if we keep it saving lives yeah so i know you said that you were a business of one for many 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 years yes so you had to make all of these decisions around the money and where it went, but not just the money, the work itself and what you were pursuing. So how did you prioritize? How did you plan? How did you strategize to get to where you are today where you have several employees and, you know, you're responsible for less in terms of, like, all of the day-to-day details? Yeah. I, um... I wish I could say I had a grand plan. In entrepreneurship, it really is like you just don't know. <laughs> in the beginning, so I didn't know. I didn't know if I wanted to continue with the business. I didn't know if, if it was going to be successful. I thought it probably if you asked me, I probably thought it was going to be a failure. Yeah. Um, but one thing I did know is I was going to make whatever money, little coins I had, were going to stretch. <laughs> I, mean, I learned that growing up, being yeah. poor. Yeah. That whatever coins I had, they had, I had to make it stretch. And whatever I did with my time, I had to make my time stretch. So I always strategically took positions that, you know, although I wasn't sure if I wanted to 100% go into this to doing MemSTEM as a mm-hmm. startup, I, I didn't want to close the door. So I took positions that allowed me to work both on the company and get paid. Um, and that tended to be positions in academia or related. Like even the i program was a, a postdoc position, but it specifically allowed me to work on the company as a core part of the postdoc and then I went to University of Louisville as a mm-hmm. research faculty member there and so I may, I took projects that were you know it's a conflict of interest to work on the company but yeah. it's like say if I want to make cookies okay I can't go work at you know insomnia cookies and just take all you know yeah, yeah, a conflict yeah. of, but what I could do is I could go work at the cake company and I'm learning all about the baking industry I'm learning all about you know how you how you um, bring in ingredients at a low cost so you're building your business in a way but you're getting paid for it and is, is it, that how you learned like the grant writing process yeah. and all of that yeah. okay how yeah. did you learn how because you you know just like rattled it off like oh yeah I got I wrote a grant for phase one got it got a grant for phase two got it like how in the world? <laughs> yeah because like Kyla's over here like I got a bunch of grants now but in the beginning yeah it was difficult like for me it was really hard to learn like what to write how to write it how to package things in a way that it could be funded so like yeah uh, by the grace of God, like I tell okay. you, I, I still like, and, and when I say by the grace of God, people are like, oh, you being too, being too churchy. Too the reality spiritual. is people have, and another people have done it at studies and they've shown most entrepreneurs, I don't care if it's Steve Jobs all down, will tell you luck is what they call mm-hmm. it, had a big part to do with this. So I do think a lot of it's definitely by the grace of God. But then in terms of technically, when I um, wrote my first grant, it was an SBR phase one. It was when I was still a student mm-hmm. and I, got terrible reviews and my <laughs> instinct was oh terrible reviews tore me apart said I was too young didn't have anything going on with my life you know more or less and I got a job <laughs> got your hair you know <laughs> Uh, so they had all these things to say. So I just took it as, well, I'm not going to go down this route again until mm-hmm. I, I was at a conference and I was talking to a woman who's so well-respected in our field. Like she's like, you know, one of my heroes. And she started telling me the story about like, oh yeah, yeah, I applied for an SBR and I uh, didn't get it till the third time. And I was like, oh, so people should, you should probably keep applying to this. Like just 
I it's dawned on me that okay, I was an absolute failure because I got denied the first time. Mm-hmm. So the second time I applied, I got it, and then I got it the phase two. But I think what helped was I had somebody pushing me. Um, we actually had somewhat of a probably contentious relationship, maybe. Um, he was like a thorn in my side, um, <laughs> but he really like he would. He was a grant writer, and I would submit. The second time I would submit to him and he said, this is terrible. And he'd mark it up <laughs> and he would put all these red marks on it. And he would say, you know, but he but I, he would tell me to make changes. But I was like, but you're not telling me exactly what to change. And the reality mm. is he didn't know exactly. You know how we write yeah, these great. They, they don't know exactly. They just know it looks terrible. Yeah. Right. And so um, but I think what what I'm, I'm a pretty good storyteller if I can get because I want everything to fit in the line. And mm. if you can want everything in your life to fit like a puzzle sometimes and it helps you with the grant because you want from the first base to the end. I want this to be a continuous flow. Yep. You know, it's like when you do your dissertation and there's a whole bunch of separate stuff you did over, you know, five, six, 10, 12 years, depending on how long right. it took you. But you got to make it all weave it into one story. So the dissertation process helped. I was like, okay, how do I weave this into one story? Yeah, and I just cool. sat down and I thought with that context of it needs to all flow. And I. I don't know, I spent maybe a day in the library restructuring everything and I sent it to him and he was like, this is gorgeous. Like, I don't know what you did. I really don't know what you did, but this is perfect. Like, (laughs) he's like, you didn't take any of my advice, but this is great. (laughs) (laughs) But I know like one of the tenets of like entrepreneurship is to fail hard and fail fast and fail often, right? Because the faster you fail, the faster you're going to get to that innovation, right? So it sounds like you learned that kind of (laughs) through the fire, (laughs) but... Graduate school is definitely a good place to learn how to fail. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, absolutely. yeah. Plenty. <laughs> plenty of failure. Yeah, plenty yeah. Of no failure. lack of failure. Plenty yes. of failure. That's your daily portion of failure. Right. <laughs> Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Fail, right. fail, Wake up, fail. fail. Lunch, fail. <laughs> it's, like, uh, it's like the Game of Thrones. Instead okay. of shame, it's okay. like fail. 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 Your, it's your advisor with a right. cat of nine tails. Right. Yeah. I agree to let Fail. y'all two on this show together. Whose idea was this? All right. So thank you so much, Angelique, for being on our show today. Yes, thank you. This was so much fun. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I want to make sure that people can find you after this interview. So how do they find you on social media? Um, for Twitter, I am Dr. Underscore Angelique. Okay. That's my handle. And uh, Instagram, which I just started to IG. Is The Visionaire. And so that's T-H-E-V-I-S-S. I-O-N-A-I-R-E. So it's like millionaire. Mm. Instead of money, you are vision rich. So it's the visionaire. Okay. okay. She got all the visions. Two S's. Two S's. Got all the visions. Because one is a dollar sign. One's one. that a year. <laughs> yeah. I was like, can you do that on, can you do that on Instagram? Can I, make, can I use dollar signs <laughs> in my hand on Instagram? Yes, you could. I could have? So. Probably. I don't know. I think so. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm going to change it up. No, do not change it because then people yeah. can't find you. Yeah. All oh, right. Okay, never mind then. As always, you can find us on our website, modernfigurespodcast.com. Send your questions to ask us at modernfigurespodcast.com. And follow us on Twitter. Kyla's at Dr. Underscore Kyla, and I'm at Jeremy Wesa. Until next time, drink some water, eat some vegetables, and be extra like guacamole because guacamole adds quality and isn't just extra for no reason. <laughs>